Amen. You may be seated. We are back today in the letter of James. You can read along in your Bible if you've got it, or there's uh, the text today is printed on page 9 in your bulletin. I'm only going to really focus in on this week on verses 9 through 11, but let's read the first 12 verses for some context. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, now that you will really do some stirring in our hearts through this as we hear today and go forth to live it in Jesus' good name. Amen. So Jesus told us that there are two great commandments, right? Two great things God requires of us human beings. Who can tell me what they are? What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God. Heart, soul, strength. What's the second? And it's interesting what Jesus says about it. What's the second command? Love your neighbor. And he says that second command is like the first. That's very interesting. It tells us that this thing that the old writers used to call piety, you know, your relationship with God, and justice, your relationship to all the people in your life, your relationship with God and your relationship with people, they're connected. When God comes in, when God like, gets a hold of you and begins to change you and, and make you a whole person, that is going to change your relationships. In fact, the Apostle John goes so far as to say, don't say that you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. Like, let's get started with the stuff right in front of you, right? Now, C.S. Lewis had an interesting um, illustration that has helped me a lot in thinking about this. I actually thought you, the younger ones here might relate to this. So he used the illustration of a fleet of ships. Maybe you guys, maybe, I don't know, maybe like starships is more kind of the thing today, you know, sort of spacecraft. But I want you to imagine with me a fleet of starships on a mission, flying in some kind of formation. And Lewis said there are three things you need if this fleet of starships, or in his case, ships, is going to have a successful journey, a successful voyage. And I want you to think, what are the three things that have got to be the case if that fleet is going to have a successful voyage. Who can tell me like what this might what do you what, what's got to be the case? Hmm? They need to know where they're going. There needs to be a destination. Otherwise they're just wandering in space or just kind of being drifting around the ocean. They need a destination. What's another thing that's got to be the case if they're gonna have a successful voyage? Say again? Uh, that's good. What well, somebody said a crew and leadership, and basically the crew and leadership are going to make sure that ship is in ship shape. 
if your ship has problems, if you've got mechanical failures or your, your ship is not seaworthy, like your ship has to be in, in good working order and the leadership you know, and the crew kind of make sure of that. So you need a destination, you need a ship that's working. What's the third thing you need? And this is what we're getting at today. Don't bump into each other. If you keep crashing your ships into each other, you're not going to have a successful voyage. And I find those three things very helpful because it's interesting. Those are the exact three things you find in James 1. In these first, like, verses 2 through 11, James begins by saying, here's your destination. God's going to make you perfect. <laughs> God's going to make you a whole person. He's going to make you a whole Israel, a whole, like, community. And then he talks about your seaworthiness in verses 5 through 8, and he says, now listen, along that journey, there's going to be stuff that's going to really rock you. You need to be in prayer to keep your vessel seaworthy, right? You need to be, like, com- connected to God so- along the path because it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough times, you know, storms and things. And today in verses 9 through 11, he kind of begins talking to us about relations in the fleet. He basically is saying to this, this new Israel, not totally new, But in Israel that's being formed around Jesus, that's what's new about this Israel, the 12 tribes forming around Jesus, and he says to them basically in this text, you know, the more you, the more God's making you whole, and you are, you, the more completely you trust God, the more completely you love God, he says the the more that's going to change your relationships, and particularly, the more you just trust in God, and you love God, and you're like dialed into his kingdom, the more that's going to change the way you think about status between people, among people. I want to talk for a few minutes here as we think about the fleet and its relationships within the fleet. I want you to notice what James says here about God's leveling, God's leveling of people. Let the lowly brother boast that he's being exalted. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. God is leveling. Now, the thing that it seems like James is saying is that God is leveling the rich and poor. And in our very, um, you know, there's been a lot of revolutions in the last 100, 150 years that have been all about that, right? Kind of leveling the rich and the poor. And it sounds like he's saying, you know, the poor should boast because God is championing their cause and he's going to level the rich and the poor, kind of, you know, redistribute the assets and make sure everybody's kind of on on the same level. And there's something very attractive about that initially, but, you know, it's not quite that simple if you look at the text because the contrast is not here straightforwardly between the rich and the poor, is it? It's actually between the rich and the what? Like, read your Bible when you read your Bible. Don't just blow past things without noticing. What is the actual contrast between the rich and the, and the what? The lowly. The lowly. The only other place in James' letter where he uses this is when he says in chapter 4, God resists the proud but gives grace to the lowly. Jesus used this word when he described himself in Matthew 11. You know the text well, I'm sure. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Paul in Romans 12 uses this word when he says, don't be haughty. Don't hold yourself above others, but associate with the lowly. Now, just let's think about that for a minute. Something's going on in this leveling that's a little bit different from just a, you know, God redistributing the assets of the world so everyone kind of has the same. It's not, there's something else going on here. And to see more precisely what James is getting at, I'd like to just step back and, and, and think about what the Bible says about wealth and poverty kind of generally. And I think if you think about what the Bible says about wealth and poverty, you will see that the Bible talks about wealth 
in a couple of different frames. It gives us a couple of different windows on wealth. The first window or the first frame on wealth is what I'll call the stewardship frame. And, and this is one way the Bible talks about wealth. The Lord of the earth made it fruitful. You know, we're admiring the greenery driving over here, and it's just amazing every spring when you watch how fruitful that this, this irrepressible life in creation, and that's because God made it that way. The Lord of the earth made it to be a prosperous, fruitful place. You know, you throw a little seed in the ground, you could get a whole crop. It's crazy that way, the world. And the idea here is if you steward God's world faithfully, if you take care of what he has given you in this creation, he's not just going to bless it. He's going to bless it exponentially. You know, your one seed becomes a stock. Your, your, your ten seeds becomes a field of, of, of grain. This is the law of sowing and reaping. It's the stewardship frame. And in that frame, you will notice, the stewardship frame, you will see that the Bible uses prosperity as a mark of God's blessing on obedience and faithfulness. Proverbs 3 is maybe the classic text about this. Honor the Lord with your wealth, that's being a steward, and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. That's the stewardship frame. It's the law of sowing and reaping. And in this frame, poverty very often is the result of rebellion and folly, foolishness. You know, people rebel against the Lord. They, they, they try to, you know, uh, act like gods over his creation. They, they don't, you know, do things his way. And, and you know, the world fights back. The, the ground, like, won't give them its strength anymore. And, and God will, you know, withdraw rain and, and these sorts of things. And God will punish rebellion with poverty, famine, destitution. And as you look at this frame, the the stewardship frame, you notice that in the Bible, the, the strength of the godly, the vitality of the godly, the prosperity of the godly, it's supposed to be attractive. Abraham, as he just trusts in the Lord and God blesses him, he has an attractive life. Boaz, I love... I'm hoping maybe that Will's going to preach through Ruth for us this summer. And Boaz is a man, you just like, man, can I get a guy like that for my girls someday? You know I mean? He's just, he's an excellent man. You know, Psalm 1 people, they flourish, their leaf doesn't wither. The godly don't go about with their tail tucked between their legs. You know, I'm a worm, I'm nothing, I have nothing. I'm kind of a, you know, they're not losers. There's something very attractive about the fact that they're way more than just barely existing. God is prospering them. That's what he does when people steward well. That's the stewardship frame. But there's another frame. There's another way the Bible looks at wealth. Because very early in the Bible, what you begin to see is that as people turn away from God, they don't want God to be God. They want to be gods themselves. Wealth begins to fuel in people Not gratitude to the Lord who gave it to them. Not generosity to those around them. Wealth begins to fuel pride. People begin to use wealth, God's gifts to them, to exalt themselves against him. To say, we don't need you, God. You know, it's it's Nebuchadnezzar looking out over Babylon, kind of thumping his chest. Is this not Babylon, the wonder of nations that I have built? Look at this glory, right? That's That's the heart of sinners as their wealth and prosperity begins to allow them to shake their fist at God and to exalt themselves not just against God, but to exalt themselves over other people. I think Cain really shows us an early example of this. And in this frame, the sovereignty frame, so you got the stewardship frame, but then you got the sovereignty frame. In this frame, wealth, at least for the people who have it, it begins to be seen as an independent source of security. 
Like we don't so much need really to pray, give me this day my daily bread, because look at how magnificently I'm doing making daily bread. I have security. I got lots of money in the bank. I'm doing great. The, the, you know, the crops keep rolling in. The sheep and the calves are, you know, they're bearing. Um, it, it, and it becomes an independent source of status. I have worth because, I've, I, because of this. I have peace because of this. I can live well because of this, right? It's, it's, it becomes an independent source of, of these things, security and status. And what you notice is when people begin, anytime they begin to worship a creature, something God has made, that worship of the creature, I don't need God because I have this. Now, we don't so consciously think that. But kind of what I've watched with people over the years is, you know, what, what we think in our heads consciously is usually not the problem. It's that thing that's got your heart where you start to feel really comfortable in life, not because of God, because of something. You start to have real peace because of this. I can really enjoy life, not because of God, because of this. You're worshiping it. You're worshiping it. And what you realize is when you begin to worship something, more, it begins to really be the basis of your peace and joy and fulfillment and a sense of worth. More than God is, it begins to separate you from God. It begins to create a gap between you and God. And what's very interesting about wealth is that as it separates you from God, it elevates you over other people. This is a very short step. Is it as wealth begins to separate me from God? I don't so much need to be in fervent prayer and crying out to God and turning my heart toward his, his kingdom because I've got a kingdom. And this is what really makes my life worth living. As, as it begins to separate you from God, it will begin to exalt you and elevate you over other people. You'll begin to look at other people and say, you know, that person, again, you won't say this consciously. I mean, nobody's this doltish, really. There are people who are this doltish, but very few people are this doltish. Just say literally out loud, you don't have what I have, so you don't matter like I do. But that gets in our hearts. You don't have what I have, so you don't really matter like I do. I mean, if I'm so full of myself because of my prosperity and wealth that I'm willing to hold God at arm's length, is it any surprise I'm going to hold people at arm's length? That's why Paul says, don't get haughty. <laughs> you go have coffee with the lowly. You associate with the have-nots. And what you see, this separation from God, this elevation over others, this is the sovereignty frame. What should make me more grateful to God? Look at how much God has given me. What should make me more generous to other people? I have so much more to give, more of a blessing to my neighbor. It actually begins to separate me from both. And there's another short step in this sovereignty frame, separation from God, elevation over others. And there's a very short step from elevation over other people to exploitation of other people. Because you can reach a place in your wealth and prosperity. Why should I care if I get what I want at somebody else's expense? Losers, weepers. There are whole kind of ideologies that are built around this. Losers, weepers, man. Those are the breaks. And you're going to have an exploitative attitude towards other people. And you see that in the history of Israel, all over the history of Israel, that God's faithful ones, the people who are truly worshiping and serving God, are often suffering poverty under proud oppressors who basically are acting like theirs is the kingdom. Not God's is the kingdom, theirs is the kingdom. Hannah talks about this in her song in Samuel. David's always talking about it in the Psalms. Mary's Magnificat. God throws them haughty down from their thrones and lifts up those, the lowly, who trust in him. Now, by Jesus' time, so James is writing not long after Jesus. By Jesus' time, that pride, that sovereignty thing that comes so often with wealth, it's epitomized 
in the proud beasts, we'll call them, because Revelation pictures them as beasts, Daniel pictures them as beasts. They're these proud beasts of political Rome and religious Judaism, these mighty powers of Jesus' time, and they are full of their own wealth and status. And it's interesting that when Jesus is on the earth, I think sometimes people misread Jesus a little bit in what he's doing. What Jesus does is he begins to, to speak against pride and wealth and mammon. What he's doing is he ruthlessly exposes the idolatry under the economy. There's an idolatry, there's an idol worship underneath this economy. Because he's looking, obviously, at Rome. You know, Rome was about Rome. Rome wasn't about God. But the Jewish leadership, the people who were the leaders of the covenant nation, and Jesus looks at them and their wealth. They were so wealthy. You know, Herod built them this colossal, glorious temple. And they, you know, inhabited it. And, you know, there was just so much glitz and glamour and such prestige. And they had power. They could put people to death. You know, they, they, they policed kind of the, 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 patrolled the borders of the nation to make sure people were in line with kind of the, the, the program of, of, of the rulers of Israel. And, and Jesus looks at them and their wealth and their, 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 their church leaders, right? Their religious leaders and their wealth and their status has trumped the kingdom. They're more interested in their wealth and status than the Son of God. They're more interested in their wealth and status and prosperity and their position than they are in the kingdom of God on earth. And Jesus just goes after it. He goes into the temple and he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. Now people needed to buy, you know, they're traveling in from other places. They needed to buy animals. But you walked into this temple, Herod's temple, and Jesus looks around and he says, this is like, this is just like big business. This is about you. It's about your power and, and, and display and pomp and circumstance and making money. And he starts throwing the tables, not because there was anything necessarily wrong with helping these worshipers get animals, but because the whole thing was about, it was about wealth and status. It was not about God anymore. You've turned my father's house. There should be a house of prayer, a house of dependence, a house of being on your face before God, crying out for his favor, and you're just full of yourselves. He rebukes the idolatry under the economy. Now, to his disciples, he gives, the op- he gives the other road. He says to them, you, followers of the Messiah, you cannot serve God and mammon. You, I'll put it more in 21st century terms. You cannot serve God and money. You can have God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot have both of them in charge of your heart. He says to his disciples, you, the poor, you need to seek first the kingdom of God. God will take care of your food and raiment and all the rest. But Jesus isn't just talking. He models this, doesn't he? Because he's a king. You know, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He owns it all. I mean, he really does. He owns it all. And yet he lays aside his status. He lays aside all of his glory that could come with his immense, infinite wealth. He lays it all aside because he's giving his life for the life of of the world. And Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, though he was rich, he was rich. I mean, you don't even know rich. (laughs) He was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the king. That's the model. And the world economy of that time hated him. He was a threat to their status. They hated him. And now they hate these readers who follow him. And following Jesus, as James has already indicated here, following Jesus has exacted an immense socioeconomic toll on these early followers. And James is essentially saying to them in verse 9, as their pastor, 
They're poor. They're, many of them displaced in their homes. They're hated. They're marginalized. Their socioeconomic status is like zilch. And he says to them as their pastor, yours is the kingdom of God. Now listen, not because you're poor, but because you follow Jesus. That, by the way, is something, we're going to come back to this in a future sermon. That is, a, that is a false teaching you will sometimes hear in Christian circles, that just because you're poor, that means you're kind of with God and the angels. There are poor people who worship wealth and status, and there are rich people who worship wealth and status. So it's not that they are poor that automatically means theirs is the kingdom. It's because they follow Jesus no matter how much poverty and no matter how much marginalization you experience, because you follow Jesus, yours is the kingdom. It's what he, Jesus said in his kingdom manifesto in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, opens it up by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, the lowly, those who know they need God and they listen to him and they, they seek his kingdom and they follow his Messiah and they cast themselves upon him and trust him entirely. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the crown. That's the leveling. That's the leveling. In all your lowliness, you follow Jesus, you boast, and the rich should beware because the flower is going to fade. That's the leveling. Now I just want to talk for a couple of minutes about loving on the level. Loving on the level. Without question, some of us need to be shaken spiritually by this. I mean, beloved, just 15 years in this particular place, speaking here, wealth, I actually know Long Islanders who think they're poor. Like, I need, I hear this all the time, I need, you, you need. I suspect none of you in this room have ever really known need. N- name a day in your, some of you, some of you, some of you maybe have, but how many of you have actually had extended periods of time where you don't have food and clothing? That's a need. That's need. Some of us need to be shaken spiritually by the fact that wealth has claimed our trust and our allegiance just more than we know. Many of us would be really angry with God if you took your stuff away. Many of us would be extremely unable to kind of navigate life if God shook up the prosperity that we enjoy here. Some of you kids are being raised in a level of opulence that has created in you an expectation that somehow you almost deserve this. You have no idea. Some of us need to be shaken spiritually by this leveling. James says in verses 10 and 11, the flower is going to fade. All your money, all your stuff, everything you have, it can be gone in a moment. Riches make themselves wings. Some of us need to be just shaken by that from time to time. If that's your God, if God's given you stuff, praise the Lord. He is generous and good. If that's your God, if that's what you find peace in, if that's what really makes your life where you feel like my life is worth living because of all that stuff, just remember the beauty of the flower falls and perishes. And we need to be shaken spiritually. But we also, and this is where I kind of want to spend just a moment, we really need to be shaken socially. Shaken socially, not just spiritually. Because having stripped wealth of its delusions of sovereignty, Jesus also stripped wealth of its illusions of status. Let me say that again. Having stripped wealth of its delusions of sovereignty, Jesus has also stripped it of its illusions of status. Because in the kingdom and the body of Jesus Christ, socioeconomic factors, please hear this, socioeconomic factors are irrelevant 
in determining someone's status. They have no, it's not even a consideration. Where you went to school, where you work, what you own, what you don't, you know, the nest egg, no nest egg, you know, you, the, your social circles of, you know, your social connections, your lack of social connections, it doesn't, none of that socioeconomic stuff has any bearing whatsoever in this kingdom, in this body, on your status here. Your lack of that stuff doesn't lower you one iota. Your having all of that doesn't raise you one iota. In fact, that's what's really radical about the Jesus movement. See, people always want to say the, what's radical about the Jesus movement is he, he, he levels all the assets. That's not true. He does not level all the assets any more than he makes all of you gifted in exactly the same way. What is radical about the Jesus movement is not that he levels all the assets. It's that he levels, it's a more, it's a more, even, more even more basic leveling of status, where it doesn't matter what you have or don't have, you all, the status has been leveled. Now think about how freeing that is. Because, you know, I, you watch, and I look at my own self, and man, I, I, it just blows me away sometimes. Human life is just racked by status wars. It's just racked by status wars. You think about how much of your life gets caught up in this, craving and competing for what? For prominence and dominance. We really just want to be prominent and dominant so much. We just don't, we want to be a winner. <laughs> I want my kids to be winners. And, and we think of it in socioeconomic terms. I want them to be successful. And, and we just compete and we crave status, socioeconomic status. We're always, you know, not just in socioeconomic stuff, we're always measuring ourselves against the out group. Or against the in-group, you know, oh, I'm cooler than those people that, you know, get sucked into that over there. You know, it's just all about, you know, I'm better than you because that's status. You know, we measure ourselves against the up-and-comers. We, raise, we measure ourselves against the down-and-outers. We do, please, we do. We don't think we do. We think we're way beyond that in our sanctification. We totally do. We think we're better than those with less. We think we're worse than those with more. Both of them threaten us. The up-and-comers might nip at my heels, the down-and-outers you know, who knows what they might take from me, and those over me are obviously a threat because they always make me feel insecure, whatever. And Jesus just drops this liberating bomb on the whole playground. I know, I'll see your imagine and raise you, John Lennon. Imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine a society, if you can, imagine a society in which self-worth and our worth to each other we're defined entirely by God's grace to us. Imagine a society in which our self-worth and our worth to each other were defined entirely by God's grace to us. Imagine practicing this, that your value to the Father in heaven defines your value to me. Imagine practicing that. Your value to the Father in heaven defines your value to me. God's grace in your life, that's what draws me to you. Now, you know, certain characteristics of your personality, you know, I might find certain things you do interesting. I might find you a more interesting conversationalist than the next person. There's nothing wrong with noticing all the things that, you know, in the, world, in the eyes of the world make you, you know, someone that I might enjoy being around. You know, I might connect to you because we do have sort of similar socioeconomic experience, maybe because you have education, so it's sort of like on the level with mine or whatever. None of that disappears, but basically what draws me to people, what, gives, what really gives me a sense of their value in my life as a Christian is the grace of God. You are his creation. 
And for Christians, you are my brother and sister because you're his son or daughter. You are a prince or a princess of the kingdom of God. And that's what draws me to you. That's why I seek relationship with you. Not because you're wealthy or have connections or, you know, are cute or whatever it is the world values. I'm drawn to God in your life as a creature and as one he has set his love upon. The only status you have that matters to me really, really, in practice, the only status you have that matters to me is that you are adopted by God through Jesus. And you are an heir of his eternal kingdom and you are gifted by his Holy Spirit. That is what attracts me to you. That's your status. That's what I'm really interested in. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you've got, what you don't, you are the Lord's. And you know what's even better than that? Imagine this. Imagine having no need to hold on to any status symbol in my life except one, and that's the cross. Imagine if I could let go of every other status symbol, the car I drive, the house I live in, the clothes I wear, my shoes, you know, the, the education I have, the, you know, the, the, the job I work in, the connections in my, I could, I, all of that, I mean, those are interesting things, but none of that, all of those are status symbols. I'm just freed from all of it. I have one status symbol, Jesus died for me. You know what that means now? <laughs> it means that's my one status symbol. You know how that frees me? It means everything I have is now available to God to use. I'm not holding on to any of it. I'm not holding on to my car, my house, my job, my education, my friends. I'm, this is all wonderful stuff, but it's all, I hold it loosely because it all belongs to God. My one status symbol is Jesus died for me. So all of this in my life, Lord, my, just show me how to use it. Show me how to bless people with it. That's what it's about because I'm not holding on to it for status anymore. Imagine this. Imagine raising children in a world where they are so confident in the Father's love for them that their self-worth and other people's worth is not tied to status symbols. Imagine if kids did not, were not into each other because you're going to that school and you wear those shoes and I love your hair and all the other superficial things which are, you know, interesting in their own way, but where what you are really going after as you build relationships is not your status symbols. That's not what defines your worth to me. You might be the kid with the weirdest hairdo ever and the worst shoes, and I don't even know where you go to school. Maybe you don't even go to school, but you're on the edge of this conversation. I'm interested in you because I don't care about the status symbols. You're a creature God made. And he's put you in my path right now, so I'm interested in you. Imagine raising kids where their own self-worth was totally disconnected from status symbols. Don't care about the phone. Don't care. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't define me at all. So I'm free. I'm just, I'm chill. You know what? I think maybe we deliver a whole generation from anxiety. Imagine being free to move toward each other with generous honor and care just because of Jesus. Now, I said practice, and I'll wrap up with this. I said practice on purpose. Imagine practicing this, because this is the weird thing about status. Status is not really tied to ideas in your head. Status is tied to images. It's not so much, it's not so much a rational thing. It's kind of visceral. You've lived your entire life in a culture full of images of what status is. And those images sort of have grabbed your guts. 
And you can think, oh, yes, I know Jesus. He matters. Oh, yes, the kingdom of God matters. I mean, I belong to God. Jesus died for me. God is my father. And yet, (laughs) because your heart and your kind of guts and your basic desires, we've been trained by the images and the symbols and the rituals of our world. That's really what gets us when it comes to status. And in a world, dear saints, now, that ritually glamorizes having it all here and now, can, can, can we just be honest about the fact you are living in a world that ritually glamorizes having it all here and now? That is what is glamorized. That's what makes you important. That's what makes you influential. That's what makes you successful. That's what makes you a winner. Those people are fulfilled. And that stuff is just bombarding you. It doesn't matter what I preach on Sunday. It doesn't matter what you read in the Bible. I mean, I I hope this is like strong detergent in the gunk of our hearts and minds, but the reality is you are soaking every day in images and rituals and symbols that are saying, "That's that's where it's at. Having it all here and now. That's what makes you matter. And we fetishize this politically. We fetishize it politically because we insist that a just society, a good society, is one where everybody lives like that. Being a winner for us politically means everyone's got all they want anytime, here and now. And we're angry until that happens. That is a political fetish. In that world, that is our world. Let's not, you know, let's not just sit and grouch about it. That's the world. That's the world we're growing up in. <laughs> Here's my question. I said practice. Practically, then, what do you celebrate? What do you admire in your daily life? What holds your gaze? What do your kids notice holds your gaze? I got to tell you something. If my kids, every time another woman walks by, I'm like, ooh. My kids see it. They know where dad's heart is. They know where dad's treasure is. Let's get real. What do your people see? What do your children see? What in your life do you celebrate and admire? What holds your gaze? What animates your talk? What revs you up? There's gold and there's grass. There's gold and there's grass. What animates you? What, what holds your gaze? What do you celebrate? Is it gold that's been tried by fire or is it grass that's going to last and it'll be gone tomorrow? What do you admire? Images of sharing or images of acquiring? What do you celebrate in your daily life? Stories of investment or stories of results? Are you revved by the look of the thing or the reality of the thing? Do you celebrate the glamorous or the good? Do you, do, do, what holds your gaze? The, the gifts of God or the trophies of man? Are you all about the faithful or the sensational? Are you excited about God's strength when it shows up in weakness or are you excited about apparent invincibility? Do you rejoice in the goodness of limits or do you just have this constant quest to exceed all the limits? Dear God, let nothing be small. Maybe another way of getting at this, it's about practice. Status is about practice. Maybe another way of getting at it. Who are your household's heroes? Who do you see as worth watching? I mean, really right down to the TV and the shows and the stuff you scroll through on TikTok. Who's worth watching? 
Who's worth talking about? Beloved, I am deadly serious. I am deadly serious here. Who is worth talking about? Who's worth spending time with? These are your heroes. The people you just wish you could have coffee with. These are your heroes. Who's worth imitating? Who matters to you? And why do they matter to you? Whom in practice, in practice, oh, I admire Jesus, really. Whom in practice do you esteem? Is it those for whom God's kingdom is everything? Or is it a lot of those whose everything will be gone tomorrow? Who do you esteem? And I guess what I'd like to leave you with is this. As we think about status in the body of Christ, this liberating bombshell on the playground of status, is this that I'm about to read a major theme in all of our celebrations and admirations in our daily life? Do you look around a room like this and do you say with Paul, with joy, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But as it is written, let the one who boasts, let the lowly brother who boasts, boast in the Lord. Grant us this grace, we pray in Jesus' good name, our Father. Amen.